So is this life all that there is? Is playing Fortnite all that life has to offer? You nerds in here. Were we born, I'm just messing with you guys, I'm not seeking to offend. Were we born just to get a degree, land a job, maybe get a spouse, have some kids, make some bank, retire, and then die at a good old age? Is this life meant for us just to amuse ourselves to death? Is that what this life is all about? And think about it. What happens when suffering comes? What happens when suffering comes? What will you place your hope in that eventually won't just pass away if this life is all we got? After all, death is universally relevant because all will die. So do we just live to die? Is that what we live for? Or is there more to life than this? Is there life after death? And if there is, how do you know that you'll have it? And how is your life supposed to be transformed by that truth? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. This morning is Easter Sunday. It's the Sunday that we spend focused time celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And so what I want us to do with our time together this morning is to think about the evidence and the significance of this event for our lives. And so first, as you can see there on your handout, is the evidence of the resurrection. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of Christianity. I've said that many times. It's like that final wooden Jenga piece, and I've used this illustration several times. It's like that final wooden Jenga piece. Everybody knows what Jenga is in here? Raise your hand, please. Okay, good. So I'm not past my time. Great. This is great. I'm relevant. Um, It's like that final wooden Jenga piece, you know, as you're taking those blocks out, And you come to the final one, and you grab that thing, and you rip it out, and all Christianity comes tumbling down. That's what the resurrection is. It's the final wooden Jenga piece. There you go. You're theologically astute for the rest of your life off that one. You take it out, everything falls apart. After all, Christ predicted his death and his resurrection three different times, from Mark chapters 8 all the way through Mark chapter 10. Why did he do that? Why did he predict his death and tell his disciples he's going to live, he's going to die, and he's going to rise three days later? Why would he do that? It was to show that his life had a purpose to it. He didn't come just to live a morally upstanding life. It wasn't just that. That wasn't just kind of the purpose for his life. His life, death, and resurrection, it's tied up to who he is and what he came to do. All of it is connected. Paul says as much in one of his letter, in his letters that we'll look at later. If Christ, and listen closely right here, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If the dead are not raised, well, then let us just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Dave Matthews band lyric. That's more my time, not your time. I recognize that. Okay? So you get the point. The resurrection is crucial for Christianity. When Christians claim that Jesus rose from the grave, we're making a historical claim. We're not making just a religious claim. Even though there are religious implications of that, which we're going to look at this morning, but we're making a historical claim that Christ rose from the grave. You can study this resurrection. 
and you can come to a conclusion on it. Just as surely as Alexander the Great ruled one of the largest empires of the ancient world, so too Christ rose from the grave. That's what we're saying. It's a historical claim. Because if Jesus didn't get up from the grave in real time, in real time, then as Paul says, everything is a hoax. It's absolutely a fraud. Christianity is fake, and we just need to get on with our lives. However, some historians throughout history have dismissed the resurrection of Christ because their worldview won't allow for miracles. But not believing in miracles doesn't do justice to all the historical evidence that we have for the resurrection. And I want to take a moment just to look at how some of those critics have sought to dismiss the evidence of the resurrection. And so the most popular non-miraculous explanations are, number one, that the body was stolen. The body was stolen either by his disciples or the Roman or Jewish authorities. The second one is that the resurrection was a legend that was made up by the church. So let's look at the first one. The body was stolen either by Jesus' disciples or Roman and Jewish authorities. In Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15, Matthew writes that once the Roman guards encountered the angel of the Lord who rolled away the stone in front of the empty tomb, they were terrified. And they went into the city... These Roman guards went into the city. They told the chief priest of the Jews what had happened. And after hearing their testimony, the chief priest sought counsel with the elders, and they decided to give money to the soldiers. And what did they tell the soldiers? Verse 13, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. This is probably one of the earliest um, criticisms against the resurrection. But here Matthew records the deception of the religious leaders to cover up the empty tomb. And so the argument for the disciples stealing the body is unlikely because of the lack of evidence that there is for it. Surely the disciples would have told somebody. They would have told other disciples after centuries of of one not saying anything at all. How in the world would they just die not having ever said anything to anybody around them? Plus the fact that Christ appeared alive to so many discredits that. The other side of this is Roman and Jewish authorities remove the body. Now, if this were the case, then these officials would have provided the body as evidence against Jesus' resurrection so that it would discredit the preaching of the disciples. They would have provided the body. You don't just make up something, not provide the body, and think that people are going to believe you. That's not possible. And so most scholars today, they don't even try to deny these. Okay, They know that these are probably not realistic answers to... Uh, or criticisms of the resurrection. But if not the empty tomb, all these empty tomb theories, that's what they're called, if not the empty tomb, then where do most critics of the resurrection turn? And most of them turn to the fact that it was a, or they've turned to uh, the argument that it was a legend made up by the church. Most scholars today hold to that view, which says that these stories arose by visionary experiences of the disciples. So sometime later after Jesus' death, the disciples began to have dreams where they saw Jesus alive. They saw him alive in their dreams, resurrected spiritually, and that eventually just evolved into the claim that Christ rose bodily from the grave. But how would we respond to that claim? How do we respond to the claim that the resurrection is just a legend that's developed by the church over time? I want to give you a couple of ways right here. Five ways, five ways that we can respond to this claim. Number one, number one, 
The written records of these accounts of Christ's resurrection were too early for them to be counted as legendary. They're way too early. You've got to have a lot of years. You've got to have a lot of years out in order for something to be considered legendary. These accounts are too early. Number two, the eyewitness testimonies in 1 Corinthians 15 that include Peter, the 12 apostles, more than 500 other believers, James, and the rest of the apostles, and Paul himself, they were all still alive when Paul was even writing that letter. And so we have firsthand eyewitness testimony from those who claim to have experienced the risen Christ. Number three, the women who discovered the empty tomb. Now think about this. Women in first century Palestine were not reliable witnesses. That's not me just making that up. That's just, that's just a fact of the matter at the context during that time. They're not reliable witnesses. Listen to what one scholar says. If the empty tomb story were a legend, then it's most likely that the male disciples would have been made the first to discover the empty tomb. The fact that despised women whose testimony was deemed worthless during that time period were the chief witnesses to the fact of the empty tomb can only be plausibly explained if, like it or not, they actually were the discoverers of the empty tomb. So when you're writing these gospel accounts of Christ rising from the grave and you're a first century Jew in Palestine during that time, you're not going to have your story speaking of women being the first witnesses to the resurrection. That's not smart. That would be stupid during that time period. Unless, unless it were true. Unless it were true. Number four, the existence of the church. The existence of the church is founded on the belief that Christ rose from the grave. It is founded upon it. We're going to talk about that, that linchpin aspect of it. We're going to talk about it here in a minute. And because the resurrection is foundational for Christian belief, it's not a doctrine that was just somehow added later. The disciples didn't make up this belief later, or they didn't hallucinate this belief. If that were the case, how could over 500 people at the same time in place, as well as other people at other times, hallucinate the same thing? You know anything about hallucinations? That's not really possible. Number five, transformed lies. This is the last one under here. Number five, transformed lies. If the resurrection is a legend, then how can you explain Paul's conversion, which would have been too early for legend to take root? If the resurrection didn't happen, then how can you explain the ragtag bunch of ordinary fishermen through whom God used to turn the world upside down even in the face of persecution. How in the world are you going to explain the history of Christianity? Those are just a couple of reasons why you can be confident beyond a reasonable doubt that the resurrection happened, and the best explanation of the various arguments, I think, are the ones that we just looked at. And so no theories will give a satisfying answer to the resurrection of Christ. But why does all that even matter? Why does all this even matter? What is the significance of the resurrection? If Jesus rose from the grave, what does that mean for you? What does it mean for us as a church and how we live with one another? If the resurrection is more than historical fact, then it's significant. It's significant for your life, and you need to grapple with it. 
So I want to look at the significance of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Further down in verse 19, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And later in the same, in the same passage, he writes in verse 32, going further down, If the dead are not raised, well then just let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, I want you to think about this. What Paul is saying is that if Christ didn't get up from the grave, all that he said and that he did was an absolute wash. It's a wash. Christ was just a morally upstanding citizen if he didn't get up from the grave. If Christ didn't get up from the grave, this life is all you got. So what do you do? Well, you just go about watching Bachelorette reruns, right? You binge watch Netflix. You play Fortnite. All night. That's what you do. If Christ didn't get up from the grave, and understand this more importantly, if Christ didn't get up from the grave, then as we see in Ephesians 2, you're still a child of God's wrath because of your sin against Him. You're still in your sins without hope of being delivered from the wrath of God. You're still in your sins without the hope of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. But if he did get up from the grave, well, think about all that is yours in Christ. And much of what Brad's preaching on in Ephesians 1, much of what Peter talks about in, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, all of those spiritual blessings are yours. You have a living hope. Your hope is not dead. You have peace with God because you are at enmity with God. You are an enemy of God. You have acceptance with God. You're justified before God. And you're accepted in His sight. You can have assurance of your salvation and security that your eternal, eternity is secure. You can have assurance that your eternity is secure. Theologian Mark Straw said it best when he said that no event in human history has more riding on it than the resurrection. But if the resurrection didn't happen, actually if it did happen, then it's got massive implications for your life. And I want to look at a couple of these. So this is more of the practical section of this lesson. A couple of the implications. And when I say implications, I know that's kind of a, it can tend to be a bigger word. What I mean are just conclusions that you can draw from the resurrection, what that means for you. That's what we're getting at, okay? Implications for your life. Number one, the vindication of Jesus. The vindication of Jesus. So the resurrection of Christ is the Father's verification or acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sin. And so dying on the cross, Jesus wasn't dying on the cross for Jesus wasn't because he just deserved it because of his own sin, as if he deserved that death. He wasn't a man that was that was a damned man, so to speak, that he deserved the death that we deserved. That wasn't Christ. But rather, he went to the cross because we deserved it because of our sin. And so the resurrection is the Father's acceptance of Jesus' perfect sacrifice for our sins. It's the Father's vindication of Christ through His resurrection. So God raising Jesus from the dead by the Spirit. We see that in Romans 1, chapter 4, 1 Timothy 3, 16. God raising Jesus from the dead by the Spirit is His approval of what Christ did through His life and death and resurrection. It's His approval right, of His life that it satisfies the Father. That when Christ said, it is finished, the Father said, 
It is. It is finished. If the crucifixion was the check being cashed, as one friend put it, and as many of you have heard, then the resurrection is like God the Father's signature on the receipt that says paid in full. That's what it is. The Father vindicates Jesus through the resurrection, that He is who He says He is and accomplished what He was sent to accomplish. And not only does the Father vindicate Jesus through His resurrection, but He also vindicates us through His resurrection. If you go look at Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and He was raised for our justification. Why did we have to be justified before God? Because we're guilty sinners before God. So Christ's resurrection is our vindication before the Father. It's the Father's vindication of us through His resurrection that no longer are we guilty sinners, but guilty sinners have turned into accepted saints before God. Without this resurrection, we're still at enmity with God, and we need His acceptance. Number two, so not only vindication of Christ, but number two, another implication is resurrection bodies like Christ. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of our resurrection. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. First fruits is just an agricultural metaphor that speaks about the first and best crop of the harvest. And what Paul is saying right here is that Christ's resurrection, that is the first crop of the harvest, in our resurrection, that, that which is followed after that same harvest, the crop that's followed after, Christ's resurrection and our resurrection are inseparable. That's what he's getting at. His bodily resurrection is the assurance of our own resurrection. And his resurrection leads to the restoration of all creation in its glorified, immortal, imperishable form, including your resurrected bodies in a new heavens and a new earth. It is a new heavens, physical, and a new earth, physical. That's what happened when Christ returned in our last resurrection. So this is why John says in 1 John 3, chapter 2, that we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. So when Christ appears, we will be like Him. Meaning that when Christ appears, you can go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we will be raised in Christ, and we will be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21, that when Christ returns, He will transform our lowly bodies to be like what? To be like His glorious body, our lowly bodies. Even though you may think you're glorious. Well, from God's perspective, in one sense, because we live in a fallen world, we are lowly. I love what Keller says about the resurrection. He says, the resurrection is not a future, is not just a future consolation for the life that you never had but it's a restoration of the life that you always wanted. That's what it is. This means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but in some way, it's going to make the eventual glory and joy even better. That's what that's getting at. Number three, not only do we have resurrection bodies like Christ, but we also have victory over sin and death. Paul writes about the final resurrection of Christ return in First. Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. Really, if you just want to learn about this, you go to 1 Corinthians 15 and just read the whole chapter. It's pretty much what I'm summarizing to you. So victory over sin and death. He says this, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, 
and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to pay very close attention to that, that ending right there. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives who? Who gives you, if you're a believer, you. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So who does God give the victory? He gives you the victory through Christ. If you've been united to Christ, His victory is your victory. If Christ conquers, you conquer. You are more than conquerors, as Paul says elsewhere. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond? Number one, I think we need to respond in trust. We need to believe. We need to respond in trust. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then all the claims that he made about himself must be true. They have to be true. This is either false or it's true. It's true or false. This is fact or fiction. And if they're true, then when you're faced with the challenge to believe what he said, you're faced with the challenge to believe what he said and to submit to his, to his lordship in your life, if it's true. So understand, withholding judgment for a later date is missing the gravity of this event. No one in here, no one on the face of the planet is neutral before God, somehow just morally neutral. Like you don't have to make a decision about it. I mean, currently right now you're making a decision about it, whether you follow Christ or whether you don't. You've in some way already made a decision. So no one is morally neutral before God. It's either true or false. It cannot be both. This is a historical claim that we're talking about, and it has massive implications for your life. So do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ got it from the grave or not? Look at his claims. Study the evidence of it. It's not like it's just some kind of ethereal out there claim that doesn't actually, is not grounded in historical facts. Study those facts and come to a decision. The resurrection demands a response. So turn from living from this world in the one who conquered for you, who conquered the world for you. Trust in the one who conquered the world for you. You conquered the world because your faith is an indestructible Savior who conquered it for you. That's how you conquer. That's how you reign victorious. It's because Christ is victorious. Number two, hope. Peter, speaking to believers who were discouraged due to persecution that they had encountered for their faith, says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So for the biblical authors, one of the greatest comforts to the weary soul enduring the troubles of this world is hope. It's hope. And notice what Peter says right there about this hope. It's a living hope. This is completely counter to a worldly understanding of hope. We often use hope to communicate a desire that we have that we're not really certain about. There's uncertainty to a desire that we have for something maybe in the future. Well, I hope I get an A. Well, you don't know you're going to get an A. Your teacher could throw some crazy test down, and you're like, where did this come from? Well, then all your dreams are dashed upon the rocks of that test. Okay? You hope you get an A, but you may not get an A. And that's often how we speak about hope. The biblical understanding of hope 
is the confident expectation of a certain future. This is not uncertainty. Biblical hope is certain. It's the confident expectation of a certain future. So when Peter says that we have a living hope, it's living so much in that your Lord is alive. That's how you have a living hope. If he didn't raise from the grave, you got a dead hope. But your hope is living in so much as Christ got up from the grave. It's through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if we have a dead Savior, we got a dead hope and a dead eternity with God. So this means that at any point in your life, when you're enduring hardships, when you're going through various trials, when you're at the point of despair, there is never a moment in your life if you are a believer and you've turned from your sin and you've trusted in Christ, there is never a moment in your life that you are without hope. No matter how bad, no matter how bleak your circumstances have looked. And many of you maybe have been there. It could be a family issue. It could be a health issue. It could be your grades, and you think, this is the end of myself because you may not land a job. It could be not getting the job. Whatever that may look like, you have hope in the midst of despair. You have hope when you grieve the loss of a loved one in your life. Because why? Christ got up from the grave. So whatever it is, right, you have hope. And I love the exhortation that Peter says to us after this, right after this, in chapter 1, verses 13 in 1 Peter. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When sin, when illness, when abuse, maybe past abuse within your family, within your life, past abuse, family tension, persecution, getting ripped by your friends because you're not hobnobbing with the world. All those things, okay? All those things, one day when Christ returns, there'll be no more. There's going to be no more illness. There's going to be no more terrorism. It's not going to exist. Because what what do we have? We have a new Garden of Eden, but in this Garden of Eden, you won't even be able to sin. It's unlike that first garden. You won't be able to sin. And sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. Often coupled with the words of hope is the exhortation to persevere. This is the final final little ditty right here. So right here, I I want to give you two things. I'm, I'm just showing you from the text itself what it's saying. I'm not just coming up with this stuff on my own. Number one is encourage one another. So under persevere, how do you persevere? I think part of it is that you all need to be encouraging one another. You need to encourage one another. Why can I give you that command? Well, Paul gives that command in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. When he's speaking about the coming of the Lord, the return of Christ, he, uh, he gives the Thessalonian believers this exhortation. It's very simple. Therefore, because of all this, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another that Christ is coming back. He's going to make all things new. He's going to restore everything. It's not a consolation for the life you never had. It's a restoration for the life you always wanted. Friends, our future resurrection at Christ's return ought to be an encouragement to us. And you ought to take that encouragement and give it to others as well. One of the ways that we can encourage one another regularly as a church, I think, is by reminding each other 
that your future is bright. Though your grades may look bad and your job opportunities may look bleak. Well, friends, guess what? Praise God your future really is bright, despite everything else going wrong. If you find another believer doubting their salvation, you can encourage them that Jesus' resurrection has secured your eternity. Their eternity is as certain as Jesus' return is certain. If someone in our congregation has failing health, you can pray for them that they would be reminded how their frail body will give way to a physical, glorified body. That they would be reminded of that and that their soul would be encouraged of that. You can pray that for them. You can go to them and pray to them in person, or you can pray through the directory for them. Finally, kill your sin. Not only encourage one another, kill your sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Paul speaking to the Corinthians on how to live in light of their future resurrection. He commands them to what? Wake up from your drunken stupor. As is right, do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Speaking about that congregation, wake up from your drunken stupor. Don't be complacent with your sin. Fight against your sin. Paul's saying to these believers, stop acting like Christ didn't get up from the grave. Because that's what we do when we give in to our sin and we live for our own selves. When we live for sin. Stop living as if this life is all you got. As if there isn't something better to come. When we're just living for our sin and giving in to it time after time after time again. You're living as this, as this life is all you got. Live as, something, live as if you got something better that's coming to you. Stop acting like Christ didn't get up from the grave. And like any good relationship, those that have been in great relationships, like any good relationship, you're going to fight for it. You have a relationship with Christ. You're going to fight for that relationship. Letting sin have a foothold in your life is going to tear at that intimacy that you could be enjoying with your Savior. And so let the smoke of war go up in your soul because you are fighting to salvage that sweet intimacy with Christ because you're fighting from your sin. So is this life all that there is? Well, no. No, because your indestructible Savior has secured for you an indestructible inheritance. So it's not all that there is. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, they shall never die. So do you believe this? I pray that you do. Think seriously about the claims of Christ. Think seriously about the resurrection, the history and the evidence of it. I pray that you do come to believe in this if you don't. And if you do, live a resurrected life right now, seeking to salvage and to stir up that sweet intimacy with your Savior. Let's pray.